0: Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Breaking Down Mental Health, with myself, social worker Simon Khan, nurse practitioner, Dr. Christina Swiner, and child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Heidi Burns. Today, we are joined by
1: Matt Zugel to discuss the mental health code. Matt Zugel obtained his Bachelor's of Arts in Behavioral Science from the University of Michigan and his Master's in Social Work from the University of Illinois. He worked briefly as an individual and family therapist for at-risk youth and their families before he took his current role as the recipient rights officer for Washtenaw County Government and is currently seated at Michigan Medicine. He has served in this capacity since 2006. He investigates allegations of violations of the Michigan Mental Health Code as well as provides education regarding the Mental Health Code and recipient rights. Matt has no financial disclosures to share with our audience today. Thank you for joining us for this discussion.
2: Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation.
3: Matt, let's start out very basic here. What is the Mental Health Code and why was it developed?
2: Great. So the Michigan Mental Health Code is a law that was created back in the 70s, and it's designed to um, provide guidance on how mental health services are provided in the state of Michigan. The Mental Health Code itself is contained of about 13 different chapters, um, one of which uh, applies directly to health systems. The others apply mostly to either infrastructure, administration, or several of them uh, address how care is provided in a community mental health setting. Um, in the state of Michigan, every county uh, is required to either have a mental health agency or an authority. Um, I actually work for Washtenaw County um, health, Mental Health Agency, which is affiliated with the government. The majority of the um, agencies or authorities in Michigan are not affiliated with their, their county government. I think Washtenaw is one of either two or three currently that is. The rest of the authorities are not affiliated with uh, government at all. The majority of the mental health code, again, uh, provides detail about who qualifies for services, how those services are paid for, what services we can and cannot um, offer the the recipient or the patient. And then Chapter 4, which is specific to the health systems, are uh, designed to, again, address the smaller aspects of how care is provided, who pays for them, uh, who qualifies for them, but also the admission and the discharge processes, as well as uh, patients being either committed for involuntary treatment or the patients who choose to uh, admit themselves voluntarily and what that looks like when they are involuntarily committed.
3: Matt, could you tell us a little bit more about the history of the Mental Health Code?
2: Sure. The Mental Health Code was created back in the 70s to afford additional protections over and above the rights that we all have every day. The reason that the Mental Health Code was created was because the patients back in the 60s and 70s were housed in environments that were not conducive to optimal mental health care. They were abused. They were neglected. Oftentimes, the environments that they were living in were state hospitals or larger group homes where the... Environment wasn't clean. It wasn't sterile. They were not fed uh, appropriately. They didn't always have power uh, when they were supposed to have it. So the environment that they lived in was less than substantial in order to provide that optimal care.
3: Thank you. It seems like we've come a long way trying to put in safeguards to Uh, protect these patients, but also address the stigma around mental health. Because I mean, we all talk to those patients and families who that's their fear when we're sending their child or their loved one to an inpatient unit that that's where we're sending them
2: absolutely. And the type of complaints that generated the creation of the mental health code back in the seventies are different than what the complaints are that I get now. So the environments are different. They're, they're much cleaner. They're much more conducive to providing good mental health care. It's not to say that, that the state hospitals of which there are only four now, uh, compared to when the mental health code was created are, you know, uh, hotels and and motels, you know, that with pools or anything, but it, it is, you know, the type of complaint that I get now, patients are not a, abused or neglected in the same way. They're treated much more dignified. And the types of complaints, although they do happen on occasion, you know, I've been here a long time and I have certainly done uh, you know, a small handful of abuse or neglect allegations. The types of complaints now are typically complaints that have never happened before or happened uh, in different circumstances. So they're they're not the traditional someone's been hit or neglected to the point where they're physically unwell or malnourished. There are different types of complaints especially over the last couple of years with COVID and and things again that have just, just never happened before that we have to kind of get used to in in a changing environment.
3: Thank you. So we have the mental health code, but we have also been hearing a lot about recipient rights recently. So how do you, these two things fit together?
2: So recipient rights is a chapter and a half of the actual mental health code itself. So recipient rights is what guarantees the patient's certain rights under the mental health code that we kind of sometimes take for granted. The right to be t- you know, treated with dignity and respect, the right to be safe, the right to be free from abuse and neglect, and to have your treatment information maintained as confidential. Uh, recipient rights also guarantees that the consumer has the right to receive the services that the professional has identified that they receive. So the recipient right process specifically in my job in particular is kind of broken down into three different components. So there's education, which means that I am required in, uh, to provide recipient right training for all staff who pres- uh, provide a psychiatric service. In Michigan Medicine, we do that um, annually, uh, and then uh, within 30 days of hire for new staff. The second aspect of that is consultation. So th- there there are a lot of different things that happen for the first time all the time. There are a lot of situations where staff are seeking consultation in order to prevent a right from being violated or to address a situation that's just never heard uh, happened before. And then lastly is the investigative process. So a complaint has been initiated, a a right is alleged to have been violated, um, and it requires me to do an investigation to determine whether or not that has actually occurred. And then when that does occur, then it requires remediation on the part of the leadership of the hospital to make sure that the type of violation that has happened does not happen again.
1: Those of us in psychiatry are quite familiar with the Michigan Mental Health Code and with recipient rights, given that we're part of doing trainings, I think, on a yearly basis. But a lot of people outside of psychiatry aren't necessarily as familiar with this. Our team provides consultation to patients and families primarily located in a physical medicine setting. How do aspects of the mental health code differ on a medical unit versus on, say, an inpatient psychiatric unit?
2: Sure. So the biggest difference is that the Mental Health Code does not apply to patients who are outside of the Department of Psychiatry except for very specific circumstances. So if you have a patient whose primary diagnosis is medical in nature and they're housed outside of one of the two inpatient units for psychiatry, then the Mental Health Code is more times than that not going to apply to them. And recipient rights specifically is not going to apply to them. The health system has determined years ago, before I started, to extend recipient right coverage to units that are not obligated to receive it. So the two inpatient units, child and adult, um, have to be covered by recipient rights. Other units like uh, psych emergency services, uh, ECT, the partial hospitalization program and consultation, as well as the Upjohn Center, um, the Depression Center, Uh, the health system back I think in the year 1999 or 2000 decided to extend coverage to all recipients who are receiving a primary diagnosis of mental health treatment. At that time um and I'm not sure of when the consultation services were initiated or when it became a psychiatric um, component, they decided that if a patient who is receiving a psychiatric service but on a medical floor has a concern or complaint with their solely psychiatric provider, then it would be a recipient right issue for for me to look into or to follow up with. If a patient who is receiving a psychiatric service on a medical floor has a concern with or a complaint about their medical provider, it would be referred to the Office of Patient Relations.
0: Thanks so much, Matt. I think it's an important clarification and important for us to remember that psychiatric patients are a special population, and the Mental Health Code and recipient rights were developed to promote patient safety and transparency in care. How can healthcare professionals support patients with mental health needs in medical settings?
2: I think it's important to be familiar with the mental health code, even though it doesn't necessarily apply to the patients um, that that they are serving at that time. Uh, I think that it helps break down the stigma. It helps kind of reframe how care is provided when a provider can see through the lens of the patient as opposed to always seeing through the lens of the provider who needs to accomplish specific tasks or to provide that level of care. Uh, A lot of patients come in and they are anxious. They're scared. They don't know what's happening to them. They might have a co-occurring medical issue alongside of their psychiatric issue. So being able to kind of reframe what that looks like to the patient from their perspective is going to help create a, a degree of empathy, I think, from the medical provider.
3: Matt, when you're thinking about a patient, say, on a medical unit, are there certain rights that we can limit since they're not in a primary psychiatric setting?
2: When we extend recipient right coverage to those patients, the limitations or how we provide them would be the same. So the majority of rights cannot be limited, freedom from abuse, neglect, dignity, respect, things like that. The, the categories or the code-protected rights that can be limited, can be limited regardless of whether they're on uh, an inpatient psych unit or on a consultative service unit. And they would include things like access to a telephone, visitation, internet access, which actually is not a code-protected right, but something that we've kind of offered patients uh, historically in the past. Whenever there is a limitation of a right, there has to be an immediate risk of harm to self or others that would allow us to restrict that right. And when we do restrict a right, currently what we use is what's called the a therapeutic plan on the two inpatient units. And those therapeutic plans have four components to it. The first one being what the limitation was. The second one being what caused the limitation. The third one being like a behavioral component to the plan, meaning that I'm going to, we'll use a phone as an example. The patient was using a phone to call the police or the FBI and harass them. And so the, the police or the FBI, uh, FBI rather have called back to say, please you know, restrict this person's access, which is appropriate because failing to do that could result and charges being pressed against them for harassment. And then the third element, like I said, would be this behavioral component, meaning maybe I'm going to to dial the phone for you. I'm going to hand it back to you. I'm going to supervise your phone call to make sure it's appropriate. And as long as that's okay, then the fourth element is this measurement of time. So typically, the restrictions or the limitations are in place for 24 hours because that's typically when the doctor's orders expire and have to be at least renewed or reviewed. And if the patient is using the phone appropriately after that time, then they do have the right to get their right back as quickly as, as possible. So, making sure that you know we're we're meeting those the spirit of those four elements as um, quickly as possible in that therapeutic plan that should be created at the time the limitation is imposed.
3: Now, is there any differences to the mental health code if a patient is uh, pediatric uh, versus an adult?
2: no aside from the pediatric patients have the right to receive a mental health services out at the uh, an, an outpatient setting without parental knowledge which I know is a bit inflammatory to, you know as a parent myself I can't imagine what that would feel like um, but the services that are provided are strictly uh, therapy services so no medication referrals no things like drug uh, substance abuse referrals pregnancy termination referrals things like that so those are the only that's the only difference for uh, minor patients um, aside from from the the rest of the mental health code, which applies to them in the same way, including limitations.
0: So, Matt, I know that you're seated at Michigan Medicine. Can you just share a little bit about what are rights offices at other healthcare institutions in the state of Michigan?
2: Absolutely. So every hospital in the state of Michigan that has an inpatient psychiatric unit is required to have a recipient right officer seated in that hospital. I am one, if not I believe, the only rights officer who is employ, uh, employed rather by the county and not directly employed by the hospital. But every CMH, so every community mental health agency, also has uh, at least one rights officer. So everybody who receives a mental health service within the state of Michigan whose service is funded by public dollars is going to have a recipient right officer available to them.
0: I think that's a really helpful clarification, too, for any of our clients or consumers or viewers that, you know, receive services through Community Mental Health, that there is a support available to them for any kind of clarifications about their services and supports.
2: And it is specific to both hospitals and CMHs. So if someone was receiving a service in a local provider. So if someone you know had their own practice, private practice, recipient rights does not apply to them and the mental health code does not apply to them. So it has to be somebody who is receiving uh, general fund dollars in order to fund the mental health care that they are getting.
3: Now, this may be a really big question, but how does this differ state by state?
2: That's a good question. So most states do not have mental health codes, and the ones that do, which are few and far between, do not have the level of infrastructure that Michigan has. So over the course of time that I've been doing this work in the last 15 years, a few other states have moved toward creating a version of their mental health code to try and mimic what Michigan has. So Michigan has been a pioneer in mental health care and providing rights protection as well as guiding how those services are being uh, delivered for the the population of Michigan. So it's, it's kind of stood out as a, a star amongst all the other states in how to, to provide that care, and, and other states look to us for that guidance.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating to learn. I didn't know that.
2: Absolutely. And, and a lot of folks that transfer from other health systems outside of Michigan. Or, you know, and I run into this where other hospitals who become privatized are owned by companies outside of the state of Michigan are not familiar with the mental health code at all. And then once they buy their local hospital, they're not as uh, enthused with that uh, um, knowledge to, oh, we have other regulations aside from joint commission or CMS.
0: I think that, again, reinforces, you know, that the mental health code provides transparency and safeguards for mental health patients.
2: Absolutely. And it's very prescribed I mean, the recipient rights are the rights that cover the patients are detailed in the mental health code. So it is very specific. If a patient complains about something, it either is a right or it's not that is covered under the mental health code. So following up and investigating that or coming to some sort of resolution with the infrastructure that the mental health code provides is a fairly easy task for me to to help the patient with.
3: Now, if our viewers wanted to learn more about this, is there a resource that we could direct them towards?
2: The state of Michigan's website, mish.gov, has the entirety of its the mental health code. Uh, it is a pretty long document. It's not the most exciting thing to read. So if you're looking for a little uh, late night reading to fall asleep, uh, you would be able to to kind of g- get into the, the details. And again, Chapter 4 is specific to hospitals, and Chapter 7 and 7A are specific to the recipient right process.
3: Do you have any other thoughts that you would like to share with our audience?
2: Just that, you know, I, I've been in this role for quite some time, and, and I've always encouraged providers, regardless of, you know, what service they're providing the, the patient, to use the rights office as, as, a, as a consultative tool, to to be a resource for them, and not to be afraid. I know a lot of folks get kind of nervous, like, oh, here comes Matt Zoogle, you better watch out. Um, and, and I don't care for that, right? So it's not my job to get anyone in trouble. It's not my certainly not my job to get anyone fired or anything like that. It, it's my philosophy that I'd much rather provide that consultation and be proactive to address a problem before it actually becomes a complaint where there is an investigation. Um, and if I can do that and and be part of you know the the team process and and say that, you know, how can I help you do what you want to do in order to, you know, prevent any kind of complaint or allegation being made, then then I'm happy to do that and I'd much rather do that. I think that sometimes it's easy to kind of, you know, see the recipient right office as a as a barrier to care or the mental health code as some sort of impediment when you were trying to provide a certain service. And I can understand why sometimes people believe that to be true. But I will say that there are times where, you know even though I might have to say, no, we can't do something this way, I'm more than happy to figure out another way to do it in order for you to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish with the patient. Sometimes it's as simple as saying, you know, we can't do it this way, but we can do it another way and then work together to figure that out and and honor the, the spirit of recipient rights as well as, you know, accomplish what the staff want to accomplish.
1: Thank you, Matt. I think it's important to, to remember the, the history of psychiatric care uh, in the United States and, you know, what, what the purpose is uh, of the Michigan Mental Health Code and, and kind of what we're trying to fix and, you know, move away from and trying to treat a person as a whole individual. So I think this is really important. So thank you so much. Absolutely. And thank you everyone who tuned in this week. Nurses, social workers, and physicians can claim CMEs or CEUs by visiting ofmhealth.org backslash breaking down mental health.
3: You're able to do this anytime within three years of the initial air date.
1: We hope that you will join us next time.